Tonight's episode is brought to you by Sherpa.com, SurvivalFeeling.com, and you, our listeners. That night, our camp was invaded by cows. And it was a surreal experience and more terrifying than you might think. What is up, all of you Wayward Souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell stories of adventures in the great outdoors. We tell all kinds of stories. Like, I've told so many stinking stories now from so many different angles. Um, and the goal is, long term, as we've mentioned so many times, for you guys to be telling your stories on here. At least me reading them. Because I just, honestly, it will be complicated as heck to go into, like, the format where people call in and we record it and not so much from a technical standpoint. Actually, it would be complicated from a timing standpoint because I still have a full-time job as we've discussed so many times and you guys have no idea how much goes into me just being able to get these episodes recorded and ready to go. Um, like right now, good example. I mean, we're kind of at the very beginning. This is housekeeping territory. So, Let's talk about this right now. We probably are not going to have great audio quality tonight. I apologize for that now. But the reason being is they are like repaving our entire parking lot outside of my house here. The issue with this is, is I have exactly a two hour window to record this episode right now. I talk for an hour. Okay. And then I have to get ready and have to shut down everything in the house to, you know, make sure that the AC is not coming on or the central unit. I mean, and the refrigerator and all the little noises that a house makes. You have no idea how many noises your house makes until you try to get a completely pristine and clean audio setting. Nearly impossible to pull off. Well, right now, all I've heard all day is the beep, beep, beep of backing up trucks and track hose and lots and lots of loud bangs as they chunk large pieces of concrete into this big um, metal trailer out there. So you're going to hear some of that. I'll try to work around what I can as best I can, but that's going to happen because I have exactly two hours to record this one in a one hour to an hour and 10 minute episode um, or it doesn't get made and it doesn't drop here. Like as you're listening to this, it's like probably five weeks from the moment that I'm recording it peek behind the curtain. I hate to even go there because I like these to be fresh, but I'm about to go back to work for three weeks and I've got to have at least three episodes so that it fills up the time slots with a bi-weekly drop so that we don't basically miss a week. So that's just where we are. So right now, two hours, two hours to glory, y'all. Like that's all we got, two hours. So I'm recording and there's going to be noise in the background and I do apologize for it. Hopefully it doesn't bleed through too badly. And if I hear any really loud bangs or that beeper starts beeping, I will just stop mid-sentence and through the magic of podcast editing, you know, just pick it back up and we won't have to hear that hopefully, or at least you won't. I got to hear it no matter what you hear it right now. Listen, beep, beep, beeping away. So anyway, they're having a good time out there, but not as good a time as we're going to have tonight. We are into mid-January as you're listening to this. Matter of fact, as you're listening to this, I'm probably listening to this five weeks from now on my way home because I'll be coming home on Wednesday that this episode drops. So this could be interesting. We could be experiencing this technically for the first time together because like, trust me, after I've edited these, these episodes, I can't stand to listen to myself anymore. Like 
and, and you know, if you're very self-critical, such as I am, like you can only imagine sitting there staring at my face, listening to my voice and all the things I mess up and go over. And by the time I'm done, I'm done. And it's usually two or three months before I can go back and listen to an episode after I've done a final proof. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. And it's not outdoor related. So you guys are probably getting bored with me right now as we speak. Anyway, we're going to move on and start talking about tonight's um, subject matter. Well, since we're in mid-January, that means that you know, we're kind of in the winter doldrums for all of us outdoor enthusiasts. You know, the winter gets a little bit tough for me. It's not terrible because I love to hike in the winter. Winter is my jam for hiking because as we've discussed before, I'm not the world's biggest fan of snakes in the winter. You know, you have far less opportunity to be surprised by one of those little buggers. Not that it's non-extant, just so you guys are aware, I was like, not today years old, but like maybe six months ago years old when I learned that snakes don't actually truly hibernate the way we were always taught. Like, I'm like, okay, they're out for the winter. No, no, like they just get really lethargic and kind of comatose and they just like chill under their logs and their rocks and their little dens or whatever. And like, if there's like a warm day in the middle of January, it could have been 20 degrees yesterday, but if it's like 68 today, which happens in Arkansas fairly consistently, um, they might like poke their little head out and come out and sun on a rock. So, you know, just cause it's winter doesn't mean you're safe, but the odds are far less. As I've said, I don't care for them so much. I'm more confident in trekking into places that are far more interesting to me. If I'm not so concerned about our little, um, you know, Satan worms that like to run around out there, especially in these Ozark mountains that I love so much. Um, but I like to hike in winter. Exception to that rule is I will get out, you know, in the spring, I will do a fair amount of hiking in the spring to chase waterfalls because foliage is very pretty and there's a lot more rain in the spring. So the waterfalls, especially in the Ozarks, I mean, I guess this is true, probably most everywhere, but in the Ozarks, one of the rules of thumb is most of these these creeks that have these great waterfalls are runoff creeks. Like they are basically drainages. They don't flow year round. Very, very few of them do. Um, so I will get out for that some. But, you know, you get into winter, it gets cold. A lot of people like to stay inside, don't like to get out as much. Um, and we probably, you know, starting to dream. You guys are probably starting to get a little bit antsy, getting a little bit of cabin fever ready to get out there and go get at it again. And that usually means we start itching for the river because what spring means for most of us on some level is it's time to get the old kayak out or jump out in the canoe, break out the fishing gear, get on the swim trunks or the swimsuit, put on the old water shoes and get the heck out there back in the sun, back in the cool water, back I mean, there's not many better ways, in my opinion, to really, truly experience nature than on a good old fashioned paddle, a good old fashioned float trip somewhere, especially if you do it like the smart way, like, well, that's a broad generalization. I should, I should be more fair to me. The smart way to do it is try to plan your week or take some days off or whatever, and try to do it in the middle of the week. And there will be far less people on the river. Um, that will mean in this area, maybe this is nationwide or worldwide, I don't know, but that'll mean far less nudity to have to worry about if you're taking kids out. That'll mean far less obnoxious um, alcoholism that's going on. Things can get pretty rowdy on a lot of the rivers around here, so we try to avoid that. Saturdays and Sundays mean it's going to get a little bit crazy out there. So we try to avoid that for the most part, but if that's how you like to enjoy the river, like preemptive scolding, 
Don't throw your trash everywhere. If you want to get out there and be obnoxious, cool. You do you. But, like, try to be at least considerate of other humans and especially considerate of this great planet of ours. Um, Just, you know, I, I try to stay away from blanket statements, but the truth is, <laughs> the drunker you are, the less concerned you are with where all your crap goes. Like, I used to do that. Trust me. I get it. Um, anyway, so it's wintertime. Everyone's probably starting to think about the river a little bit. So tonight's episode, our subject matter, is going to be something I call yak pagging. I've not, like, looked online to see if other people have used this, or I'm not saying that I was the origination, but I started calling overnight float trips yak packing sometime around 2000 or 2001 when we first really started doing this because it just makes sense. It's literally like backpacking but you're doing it on a kayak. So there are some uh, different considerations that have to be made, but it's the same. The concept applies. And we're going to talk about it a little more in a minute. I by no means claim the genesis of that name, but I'd never heard anyone say it before. And I've never heard anyone say it since, but it would not surprise me if it's out there in the zeitgeist somewhere because it, it goes too well together. Like that's a no brainer that, that little catchphrase kind of, I don't know. It kind of creates itself basically. Um, but we're going to talk about that. But before we get there, since we kind of did our little bit of, um, housekeeping stuff, let's talk about right now, a good time. Now is a good time to start going through your gear. You know, we've talked about gear in other episodes. Like we talked about, um, every six months, you know, spring and fall, I like to go through the backpack. I think it's a best practice to go through your hiking packs, your SAR bags, whatever it is, and check your gear, change all your batteries, you know, change to season specific gear. There's always a few different little things that you might keep in there. Like in the summer, you might keep some DEET or off or whatever, you know, some kind of backwood spray, um, but not necessarily need a ski cap in there. In the winter, you're going to want that ski cap and possibly some gloves so that they're ready to go. But that DEET's just taking up space like and putting weight in your pack that you don't need to be carrying around in the winter months because the ticks aren't, you know, we've been having some weird winters. You might get a tick here or there, but it doesn't have to live in your pack. This is also a great time outside of backpacks to start looking at all of your gear for the coming year. Like get out your kayak, check it over. Make sure nothing's crawled up in there while it's been sitting in your garage or out in your outbuilding or some people, you know, have it out there stored at the back of their house or whatever. Make sure nothing's living in there. Turned it into a home. Um, check your paddles, you know, make sure that your paddles are still in good shape, that the plastic hasn't started to dry rot or sun bleach to the point that it's become brittle. You know, it's a good time to check all your gear. Check your water shoes. Water shoes only last a few years, y'all. Like the river is hard on water shoes, the the bottom of the river, the rock outcroppings, the the soaking wet and then drying and soaking wet and then drying like it's hard on water shoes. Check your water shoes this time of year. And now's a pretty good time sometimes to catch them on sale before, like right before they start putting out all the spring stuff, which is coming soon because you guys know how retail is in, well, the world today. I was about to say United States of America, but really it's kind of the world over. Anywhere that's first world and capitalist, like everything's coming out five months before it's actually needed. Um, but in the winter months is a great time to get some good deals on new paddle gear or any kind of new summer gear that you might need for whatever your exploits are, whatever you prefer to do out there. Um, but it's a great time to go through all your stuff. Make sure everything's good and river ready or trail ready or whatever it is you like to do, because if you find a problem now, you have time to fix it. 
You have time, if say it's a mountain bike, you have time to get it to the shop. Of course, this is a good time of year to be doing some mountain biking. But my point is, whatever it is, before the season presents itself where you like to use it, make sure it's ready to go. Because if you plan and plan and plan for this awesome three-day float trip that you're going to put together, this paddle adventure, and you don't start pulling everything out until the week of, and suddenly you realize that you have a major problem, say with your kayak, there may be a hole is worn in it that you didn't see or whatever, any number of things. It might be a lot harder to take care of that issue with like three or four days to go. Say you need to order something. Say that you need to take it in for a repair somewhere. You might not have it in time to go out. So winter, when you're sitting around doing nothing, great time. All you're doing is dreaming. It's a good time to not be lethargic. Do not become a vegetable. Get busy. Get your stuff out. Go through it. Good, you know, main, maintenance is very, very important. Your equipment, it may not be animate. It may not know that you do or do not treat it with care. But I promise you in the end, it kind of works out that way. Because the better you take care of something, the better it takes care of you. And that's just a fact of life that I have learned over the long term. Um, so consider doing that. Winter's coming. You're dreaming of getting out on the river. Get your gear out. Give it a good check over. And, you know, maybe it's time to start looking at things like, you know what? I should really upgrade this. It's a really good excuse for me to hop on the old internet and order this new toy I really want. Because this one, just a little bit worn out. Time to upgrade. And you guys can thank me for that. However, do not cite me as the source when you try to explain to your spouse why you spent all that money. Like, I don't need anyone coming and knocking on my door. Anyway, let's get on to yak packing. We're going to talk about the gear that I've used over the years. Gear that has over, God, multiple, multiple, multiple overnight trips on multiple rivers. Has kind of like, you know, it just, it evolves. Your approach evolves. Your gear evolves. As you see, each time there's something new that's been hanging around. Like, God, that is a problem every time. I need to deal with that problem. And you, as the years go by, you really get it refined. You get it down almost to an art. Of course, the disclaimer is this for me. Everyone's going to have a different style, different way to float, a different way to paddle, different things they care about. So it's going to be a little bit different for everyone. But, you know, as always, listen to these episodes with a fair amount of just eh, just listening to how someone else does it. Maybe get a few ideas for yourself. Um, we've come up with some pretty cool little things over the years to help us have a good adventure and a good time because it can be very uncomfortable. Anyone does overnight anything where you're not out of your vehicle, like through hikes, overnight hikes, overnight paddles, anything like that, it can be incredibly uncomfortable if you are not prepared. If you don't know what you're doing and you're not ready for it, it can be really uncomfortable. And it can actually be very dangerous, very dangerous if you're not prepared. And I have a story that I'm going to tell you towards the end of tonight's episode that actually has to do with exactly that, me not being prepared. This was many years ago in my defense, before I really, really gone down the path of being that guy. But it's a really good object lesson, something for you guys to listen and um, go huh, point and laugh at Justin, point and laugh at the old wavered son. But hey, you know what? I actually don't have that piece of gear in my bag just because it's never happened to me doesn't mean it won't. So I should probably go buy that piece of gear. But anyway, we'll get to that. So we're going to talk about some gear. We're going to talk about some quote unquote best practices from my perspective, in my opinion. And we're going to talk about a few of the trips that I've done over the years. Like guys, 
not trying to like low key flex or anything, but I lost track of river mileage at like 900 and something river miles. And that was probably, well, I'm 41. I quit keeping track sometime around 30. I vaguely remember because it was on one kayak. It's why I was keeping up with the mileage. It was just like a weird OCD thing. Not that it affected anything. I just kind of wanted to know. So every time we went on a trip, you know, I made a little note in a notebook. I kept laying around that was always out in my shop. And I put a note. We did this many miles this trip. And then, you know, added it up at some point. I was like, God, because it was like several pages at this point. I was like, Jesus, how many freaking wow. Wow. We float more than I think we do. But I lost track somewhere over 900 miles, and that's been many, many years ago. So I have done the time out there and experienced most of the things that can be experienced out there. And from that, I've come up with some really good, you know, streamlined ways to handle business out there on the river. So we're going to talk about a little bit of all of that. But let's go ahead and start with the gear that will help you have a good yak packing adventure. Um, the principles of yak packing, in my opinion, overnight paddles, like, and people do them in, in rafts and everything else. We always did it in kayaks. Thus, it was a yak pack. We're going yak packing. And it was a pretty simple thing from the jump. Like we started out like, okay, man, an overnight would be great. And we did some overnights, um, and started realizing, God, all of our gear is too heavy. We're taking way too much crap. How do we like streamline this? How do we become more efficient? How do we fit, you know, more better food and less overburden? Because there was so much stuff. You're trying to take like full size camping chairs. I'm again, I'm talking like 21 ish years ago. Um, we're taking full size camping chairs and, and you got this little kayak. I promise you. I was overweight in the kayak that I owned those years ago that I took on so many of those river trips. I was way overweight on that kayak. I mean, I clocked in at like 195 or 200 pounds. The kayak, it was like a nine foot four inch angler sit inside kayak, like a cheap little academy job. Like, you know, no spray skirt, like you'd sink that thing if you weren't careful. And I clocked in around 200 pounds. The kayak's limit was 235. I promise you I was over late, wait most of the time, trying to carry camping gear and trying to carry fishing gear, um, trying to take photography equipment. And, you know, over time, we learned. You know, one of the first things you learn, though, is this is kind of a paywall situation. And that that alone, that's where it kind of became apparent. Like, you know, we need to treat overnights and kayaks or anything else we're floating in exactly like backpacking like lightweight, as small, as efficient, as effective as possible, multi-use items, like what can we get that'll do this, this, and this, so we can take two items out and only have one to cover three, right? Um, so when you treat this like backpacking, and that's where the name, you know, the moniker was born, yak packing. But initially, I started out by taking out the chair stuff. Okay. Like, okay. Chair is huge and super wonky. You start with a freaking full size camp chair, trying to put it on a nine foot, four inch, like angler sit inside kayak. Y'all, I had that thing crammed like a Christmas stocking on the mantle. Like it was crazy. But one of the first things I found to replace it, and it was actually something somebody gave to me on a television set on a shoot when we were out doing one of the first TV shows I worked on hidden histories. And this guy, oh, John Hill, man, I miss him. I miss him. John, you will never, ever, ever, ever listen to this. I would bet my wallet. Heck, I don't even know if you're still alive. It's been that many years since we've talked. But you were a cool dude and I miss you. Anyway, 
Um, he gave me this little tripod stool because he carried it around on the sets. He was actually a wrangler. Like we were doing hidden histories. We had a lot of stuff with horses in it. And he was one of the head wranglers. He took care of all the equestrian needs and all the equine situations. And he had this little stool he carried around. And that's what he did. He carried it around, sat on a stool, smoked cigarettes until they needed him to come do something with a horse. And then he went into action. Right. But I remember talking to him. We talked a lot on those sets. And I remember being like that stool, bro, that stool is awesome that stool is amazing i would use that on float trips like that would be perfect it's small it's compact it's lightweight and he stood up picked it up out from under him and collapsed it and handed it to me and said there you go it's yours i got another one in the truck and the first one i ever used was that one he gave me and i used it for seven or eight years probably before the water and the weather and the sun finally broke it down into nothing. No idea what brand it was, but it was pretty darn well made because I sat in it, sat in it around a campfire along the edge of a river many, many, many nights. But that was like one of the first things was like, wow, I just saved a ton of space. I don't know if I saved a ton of weight, quite a bit, but not, that's probably not the preponderance of the majority of what I've saved here, but the space alone was a big deal. You can fit it into a backpack. It was so small and they're readily available now. Like there's multiple, you can see them at Cabela's, at Bass Pro, anywhere you go, Academy, you can find them. I have two or three in case one fails um, and in multiple bags for, you know, well, I don't keep them all in the bags, but for multiple applications anyway. That was like one of the places we started. But seating is one of the first things that you start trying to figure out. And food. Food is another big consideration. Because if you're going out for, say, two full days of paddling, maybe even three, but let's just go with two. Let's go with the simplest overnight, what most people do. Food is a real concern. The way I dealt with it at first, because like back in those days, it was like, how do I get a nice chest with as much beer as I need to last for two days on this cooler, you know? And then I quit drinking years later and it became, that made things a lot easier. Just FYI. But I started out by simply not worrying so much about the food and just buying a couple of gigantic bags of beef jerky and like some peanuts. Like, let's just go for, for calories here. All I need is, all I need are, let's try to use some proper grammar here. All I need are calories more than anything. And like water. However, water's not a ton of fun to drink on a float trip. So like you work out, okay, well we need smaller ice chest. And one of the things we ran into back then is ice chests don't hold for that long. You know, especially in the heat of the sun, if you get into the really hot days of spring where it's starting to turn summer, those ice chests don't hold that long. So you start trying to learn, what do you, what do we bring out here to drink? And you started learning to drink a lot more water. Just bring a few of your adult beverages to enjoy at dinner time, whatever, you know. But that was like one of the first things. And one of the ways we dealt with that, we tried multiple ways. Let me talk about this real quick. One way we tried is there are, and they still exist on the market today. And this was after years of dealing with it multiple ways, but we tried the pull behind. There's like a little raft that's made specifically to set an ice chest in. If you have multiple people going on a trip, now it's a different ball game if you're solo on it, but if you got multiple people on a trip, you take some of the weight of their gear, like say their camping gear, and you spread it out amongst the other people, say three, four, five people, you take some of their weight. And they take over the responsibility of the ice chest. And you put the larger ice chest into that pull behind raft. It's just a little tiny thing, not much bigger than an ice chest. And they keep the food and drinks in it. And doing that, it can be done, y'all. But do it on more flat water rivers. Like learn this from like my personal experience. We had a nasty wreck 
doing that situation once. And it was actually on the Mulberry. And I remember I was like against that from the jump anyway. But they did on the Mulberry where there's whitewater rapids. And that thing, here's the thing. It puts a lot of tail drag. Excuse me. Y'all have to excuse my voice. I got a bad head cold to go along with everything else we're fighting in this two-hour window tonight. So apologize for when my voice gets weird. Um, but it puts a lot of tail drag on the kayak. And it likes to swing the butt end all over the place. Like, going through rapids with that was a terrible idea. And, like, the person that went through and and bit it, like, <laughs> ate crap, as they like to say, um, looked like they had been in a car accident from the waist down. They bit it hard. It, it cost them pretty hardcore. They didn't break anything. They were okay, but they were hurting. So understand, those pull-behind things are a cool idea, but they're not necessarily whitewater-worthy or quick water, swift water worthy. Like you want to, you want to be on a much more of a, um, a flat water type of river if you're going to do that. But it is a good option because one of the things we got into doing that is everyone would bring like their own steak, you know, each person buy their own steak, Ziploc, bag it up, marinate it however they wanted to throw it into the cooler. And, you know, we would take one good meal out for say that first night, have a really good meal and build a fire, throw it over the fire, that kind of stuff. So that's one option that you have. But again, you need to take into consideration what kind of water you're taking it out on, because you could be very well putting the person who's carrying it in danger. If it's anything more than like class two rapids pop their head up every once in a while, it is very hard to control. It is very heavy. It puts a lot of drag on the kayak. It puts a lot more work on the person carrying it. So keep in mind, if you're going to do that, Take all their gear out and y'all carry it for them. Split it up amongst the rest of you and kind of even things out a little bit. So that's one option. Another option is like I did for a long time too. Like I said, buy a crap ton of beef jerky because it'll fit in my backpack. It's in a waterproof bag. Don't have to worry about anything else. Um, And that works great. Like that works fine. But it is not a super satisfying meal sitting around the fire at night chomping on jerky. It's not bad, but you know. People, sometimes they want to enjoy things a little more. They want some flavor in their food. You get into like Mountain House. There are a lot of different things you can get into. Um, Again, just like backpacking, if you're into backpacking, if you've done overnight trips, basically just kind of convert your gear over. It's basically like backpacking, but you need to use water bags for the important stuff. That's like really the only difference. Um, and I got off track because I mentioned and went into this hole wherever we've gone for the last few minutes, but I mentioned that this is one of the kind of paywalls you might run into. It's just like backpacking in that you have to pay for technical equipment and they call it technical equipment. Essentially what it means is it's kind of colloquial and it just means, you know, lightweight stuff. The more you're willing to spend, the lighter the weight and the smaller the packing size is what you're getting into. And that's what backpacking is all about. Technical gear, get as much as you can out of the equipment you have. So you need to spend, you know, usually some pretty significant money to do that. When it comes to the river, there is no difference except you need to consider if it's waterproof or not, how to keep it water bagged, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's not completely prohibitive. Like there are middle of the road options that will last you a couple of good seasons before you ever decide to go like big bucks into something. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. There's always a middle ground to everything. Um, and it just requires some research, getting out there, looking at reviews, take the preponderance of evidence. What does it say? You know, what are the, does it have 4.8 stars out of 63,000 reviews? It's probably a super quality item. Has it got three stars? 
3.1, 3.2 out of 50 or 60,000 reviews, then it's probably garbage. Don't buy it. Just take that into account. But there are like so many different little things to take into account when you're getting your gear together. One thing I wanted to talk about, because this was one of those little hacks that I came up with. I was super psyched about maybe, maybe there's things out there on the market like this now. I don't know. But there used to be, I had a tripod grill. We called it the tripod grill. And it's really what it was. Bought it from Walmart when I was like 15 years old when we first started camping. And it's a big tripod stand. It's got collapsible legs, like they're metal, but they kind of have a springy chain in them and they'll collapse onto themselves and pack relatively small. But when you put the legs all out where they go, you hang the chain down through it and you got this round grill, just like a, a barbecue grill, a round barbecue grill, top grade that just hangs below it and you adjust the, the chain by how far that you set it on one of the legs to get the height above the fire. Had that for years, used the crap out of that thing camping. And then we started using it on overnight floats. First, I took the whole thing and I was like, God, this is really heavy. It's really bulky. It's really a pain in the butt. So I was like, okay, well, let's lose the legs. So we lost the legs and the chain and just kept the grill. The grill was great, much lighter, a little bit easier to pack, but even though it's flat, I mean, it's just a piece of grill. The problem was, is it doesn't fit anywhere readily in a kayak. Like, it's wonky no matter where you put it. Like, it's actually kind of killing space with the dead space and negative space it creates when you're trying to fit it down into um, the different compartments or the holding areas. And it wouldn't fit into most of those. So what I ended up doing, this is the hack, something to consider. You may be able to buy this on the market somewhere out there. Never had to do it because I still have the one that I I created, my redneck um, engineering job. I went in and took the grill and right down the center of it, took bolt cutters and cut it in half. And then I took and bought some hinges. I had to find some very specific hinges. You'll know what I'm talking about, but hinges that when they're wide open, they're locked and they only close on themselves. They don't go in a full almost 360 degree rotation. You put them on there the proper way. The grill folds on itself. It's flat. looks kind of like a taco. It'll pack almost anywhere. But when you put it out, you turn it upside down, unfold it. And it locks because you put it onto rocks. You set the rocks as high as you want them around the campfire. You jimmy it all around, get it pretty even. And then you lock it in reverse, put it upside down, and you've got a grill. A packable grill that you can carry in almost anything, almost anywhere. Be able to invert it, flip it inside out, whatever you want to do. And it worked great. I still use it to this day. Like, it's honestly one of my prouder achievements in life. Um, <laughs> as bad, as horrible as that sounds, it's relatively true. Um, things like that. That's the stuff you start thinking about when you're starting to think about yak packing. Um, you get into camping. Okay. The camping part of kayaking, um, overnight is keeping your tent dry or whatever you're taking and how big and heavy is it? Tents tend to be really big and heavy. So I had a solo tent for a long time. Again, this is starting way back in the day. When I was 15 or 16, I bought a solo tent that was made by, I think, Swiss, like the Swiss Army Knife brand. Bought it at Walmart. You know, wasn't expensive. That thing served me for a lot of years, y'all. I bag on buying cheap crap from Walmart. I really do. And it's generally very true. But this particular tent did some good stuff for me for a lot of years. It 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 was great. Um, still relatively heavy and, and packed relatively large, but I used that for years. You just have to have a water bag big enough to carry it because if it gets soaked in the river, you know, it's a bad day for everyone. Um, but it, it was a great thing. Um, it worked for a long time. And then I bought a Eureka Solitaire, which I paid quite a bit more money for at that time, you know, 
12, 14 years ago. That's been a great tent. Still own it to this day. Still lives in my footlocker alongside a two to three person tent that's a very small lightweight in case anyone else is going. But I kept that solitaire because it works great for solo trips and I still use it to this day. Now I say all that. Hammocks have basically replaced tents for me full stop. Very, very rarely do I ever set my butt in a tent these days. Like very rarely. There like has to be no trees or trees are implausible. Like in the Redwood Forest when I was in Cali, like you find me a tree that you can fit your trunk straps around. Not easy. The undergrowth, there's not a lot of it. And they're all like little saplings. That was a tougher deal. Or someplace where it's not allowed. They have very strict camping parameters. Petty Jean State Park's a little bit like that. Last time I was in that sol- that Eureka Solitaire was in Petty Jean like two years ago now. Um, but hammocks have pretty much replaced it for me. Full stop. Like, you get a hammock, then you get a couple of good trunk straps. Don't cheap out and just try to carry ro- rope around. I watched a guy sleep on the ground one night because his cheap hammock and his cheap rope contraption broke. There was no fixing it, and he literally slept on the ground, and he did not have a good night. Make sure you get good gear when it comes to this kind of stuff. But hammocks, y'all, they pack. They pack like this, like just a few inches by a few inches. They weigh nothing. They fit in your watertight bag so easily. Trunk straps, they don't even have to be watertight. Forget them. They don't even matter. You don't have to put them in the bag. They pack tight. They pack light. You carry that in a rain fly if you are expecting rain or something to that effect. You get a nice Eno rain fly or something for 80 hundred bucks to carry along with it. And then you have yak packing, backpacking, and even like for me in search and rescue, that Eno rain fly serves in my, you know, modular system, lives in my footlocker in the back of my Xterra. And I can plug it in if I need to take, you know, say a shelter out if we're going on a super long like shift on a search and it's raining and hey, we might get stuck out here a while. We might need to throw that up to try to keep dry, whatever. Like you get one good rain fly once, it serves multi-purposes. Like just pointing that out. They are expensive. Standalone, it's like, God, I'm gonna spend a hundred dollars for essentially a glorified tarp. Well, y'all use a tarp a few times, see how much it weighs, see how big it is when you try to pack it. And you'll be like, okay, yeah, maybe a rain fly is worth it because they truly, truly are a good one. But you take that out anywhere you stop along the river, y'all, bam, there's some trees. That looks like a great place for us to camp. Let's get up above the water line. And we're going to talk about that some a little bit later, safety issues and bad mistakes that I've made, et cetera, et cetera. But get up above the water line, hang up your hammocks, build your camp. And y'all, you can still get down there and build your fire right down there close to the riverbank, you know? But anyway, those are just some ideas when it comes to the yak packing part, just super light. I mean, it's just like backpacking. Like I said, super light, um, as compact as possible. Try to make sure and stay under your weight limit on your kayak, make sure everything's in water bags and, you know, work out your little food situation. We're going to talk about some of the things on the list I have in front of me right now in the second half of the episode, because there's stories in the stories I'm going to tell you kind of tell how that came about, how the lesson was learned in some of those situations. Um, and it's probably about time to get started into the second half. So let's go right now, take our ad break and we'll come right back after the break and we'll get started into some stories of my adventures in overnight paddles over the years. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. 
Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece, and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. And welcome back. Thank you guys for being patient, setting through that ad break. I know they're annoying. I listen to so many podcasts myself. I get it. But appreciate you guys listening through the break. And hey, go in and, you know, support some of those sponsors. Because it's your continued support of our sponsors that keep them sponsoring us, which keeps me making the episode. So if you're enjoying listening, supporting the sponsors is the great way to ensure that I continue to be able to make these episodes. So let's get back into tonight's show. Let's tell some stories of float trips of summer's past. Um, We started out in the early days floating on the Illinois River. I've been in eastern Oklahoma, western Arkansas, my entire childhood and upbringing. It's as shamed as I am to say it. Never been other than traveling outside of here. Never lived anywhere else. And the Illinois River is where it kind of starts for most people, especially in eastern Oklahoma. That's where I grew up. Everyone goes up to Tahlequah, go to the Illinois. There are several places up there that are like great restaurants to eat at after you've been on the river. And that's kind of the, kind of the, um, kind of the foot in the door to getting on the river. And that's kind of where I fell in love with it was on the Illinois river. Um, you can do on the Illinois, like just kind of FYI. I mean, there's multiple, everyone does it. Everyone does it on day trips. There's so many outfitters up there. I've used all of them. I, I would recommend every single one and I wouldn't recommend every single one just based on the particular trip I was on. There were some that were great to us over the years. And then we quit going when they turned into jackwads, like, and just rotated through all of them over the years. And finally just quit going to the Illinois because once you get introduced to the majesty of the Buffalo, the majesty of the, um, the Mulberry or, I mean, even the Elk river up in Southern Missouri, which has turned into a giant rave party. It kind of became what the Illinois was. It became something that I didn't want to go to. So I had to find somewhere else because it just got too wild. Like I'm there to enjoy the wilderness. I'm there to enjoy nature, the serenity of it all. I'm an old fart. I've always been an old man, always been an old soul. That's why I'm there. So the floating rave, while fun, and I had my fun in them back in the day, like just not my thing. And those two rivers have just become overrun to where if you don't go in the middle of the week, it's not that super enjoyable of a float. But Elk River, Illinois River, they're very, very similar rivers and not too far, far, uh, too far apart from each other. Um, but we started on the Illinois and they do have, you know, two to three day trip options if you get with the right outfitter or if you're, you know, say shuttling yourself, which is also, by the way, the smart way to do this. If you have enough people, you own your own kayaks, work it out a little bit more of a pain in the butt, the beginning and the end, but cost you a whole lot less money to simply like shuttle yourselves, do your own trip, find your own where you want to go not have to pay a third party just between you and the river. But, um, 
there are multi-day trips that can be done on the Illinois River. And that's where we started. That was like my my entrance into the, the yak packing world. And one of the very first floats that we did, like a big overnight, like we had a large group of friends back then, very large. I think we had, I want to say we had 21 or 22 people on this particular float. They did the raft thing. I've never been into rafts. I don't like sitting in that close of proximity to everyone. I've always been a kayak guy or canoe, but I prefer kayaks. Um, I like to be able to do my own thing. I don't like the constraints um, of being stuck in a raft with a bunch of people, especially when they start getting too intoxicated. Because then you're just being a babysitter and trying to keep people alive. But we had several rafts on that trip. I had my kayak. There was a couple of other folks that took kayaks. And it was, I forget if we went in early spring or if it was later in fall, but we were in a transitional season because it was super hot during the day. And then it got pretty dang cold at night. So we're out here and we're going to go do this big overnight. I don't think it's the first one we ever did, but it was very early, very early um, in our overnighting days. And so we go on down the river, like I'm telling you this story for a specific reason and we're getting there. And this is one of those, you're not, you're not going to believe me when I tell you, um, you have to know me personally and trust my personal integrity to accept this as a fact that happened because I wouldn't believe it, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Anyway, we go on this float, we do our day, get down, find a decent camping spot on the bank of the river. And it wasn't really a decent camping spot. That was part of the problem is it wasn't the greatest spot, but it was like one of the only available ones. And we were quickly running out of daylight at that point. Cause we hadn't been finding any good spots. A lot of that land on the um, Northern part of the Illinois river above Lake Tenkiller is private land. And it's hard to find a place to put out a tent. So we find a place where there's kind of a shell outcropping coming out into the river a little bit and it was the only place that looked like it had enough available space to put as many tents as we had to put out and that was a trick that night y'all we got people putting out tents having to put heavy rocks in the corners of the insides of their tents no one was really able to put out stakes very few people because it was basically sleeping on rocks it was a rough night but that night was interesting for multiple reasons we had so much wind coming up the valley over the surface of the river blowing right into our camp and it was getting really cold like it was getting like miserable cold hard to keep a fire lit kind of wind hard to keep it from burning up in a split second because there's so much oxygen pushing through that fire and that's one thing we got wise that night we were pretty proud of that that night we got all macgyver on it we all got down um the a handful of us and drug the rafts up and we built using the trees that were lining along the edge of the river the way that that outcropping laid out moved camp moved the fire back up behind the trees as a windbreak but put the the rafts up behind the trees and built this giant wall basically two rafts wide and it worked as a great windbreak it looked big until you tried to fit 22 people behind it and then it was like 22 people huddled up and like it it was it was close proximity, but it was that cold. We were all that close to the fire, huddled around it anyway. It worked as a great wind break. Super smart idea. Keep that in mind. Some some version of that might help you out down the road someday. But that night, we get our camp set up. We get our dinners cooked. We get everything, you know, worked out. I melted the best pair of river shoes I've ever owned that night. Like, I'll never forget that. That's one thing about that trip I'll never forget. I've had multiple pairs of water shoes over the years. Um, gosh, I've had Morels. I've had, guys, I've had some really high dollar ones that were crap that lasted 
three or four trips. They were already coming apart at the seams by the end of the summer. I've been heavily disappointed in multiple pairs, multiple brands of water shoes over the years. The best pair I ever owned were a pair of Wolverine water shoes. Okay. I got them on clearance at Academy. They were built just like tennis shoes, but they had kind of a neoprene sock that was kind of attached around the um, ankle so that they kept the rocks out of your shoes completely ventilated. They were just mesh everywhere, but they had a real sole on the bottom. They had a real insole on the inside. Never got rocks in those. They lasted for years. They were the best. And I got them for like literally $15 on clearance at Academy. They quit selling them. They, they were discontinued, which is why they were on clearance at Academy. Those lasted me years and were the best pair of river shoes I ever had until that day. On that particular float when we started doing overnights and for whatever reason my brain didn't make sense of like oh yeah they might as well just be wet when you take them off tonight right because you're going to put them back on in the morning and my brain was like they're going to be cold and wet when I put them on and that's going to suck but you're about to step into the river anyway to launch your rafts and your kayaks right so it was just dumb but I set them up to the fire not like right next to it I thought I gave them enough distance onto a rock to like have them dry out overnight. And the, the side of one of them completely melted and ruined the best pair of water shoes I ever had. That was not the only bad thing that happened that night. Um, that night, our camp was invaded by cows. I kid you not. And it was a surreal experience and more terrifying than you might think. You, you guys think about cows. They're cute. You know, they're out there in the pastures and they're furry and, you know, they're cute. Everyone loves cows. Cows are cute. I worked cows growing up. All of my friends' dads had cows because it was like tax write-offs and stuff. And cows, there's big money. There's big money in bovine, y'all. Um, and everyone had, you know, if they had an acre of land, they had a cow or two. Like, I worked cows. They're massive. Even if they're docile and friendly, all they got to do is knock you over and step on you and you're dead. They weigh, like, <laughs> not a literal ton, but damn near it. Like, half of one. Like, they're huge. They're powerful, powerful beast, docile or not. The way this invasion, this incursion into our territory occurred in and of itself is quite comical. I've told this story many times over the years. Um, So I've got my, my very first solo tent. I told you about it earlier. I'm not going to try to describe the whole thing, but I'm just going to put it to you this way. It was a bivouac tent. It was a bivy. And, you know, it's about the length of your body, not much wider than your body. You're basically in a cocoon. But it did come up to a point where you could actually set up in the very front end. It used a hiking pole extended, and that's how it, you know, worked its way down. But down at your feet, it was only like six inches tall, not much taller than your feet. And it had a flap that closed on the front and zipped down. Well, the way I had to put my tent out, because we were on this weird rock ledge on the side of the Illinois River, right? Everyone's got their big two and four people tent set out. People are all piled up in their tents, whatever. I set mine out because the flattest spot I could find that had some dirt in it was like this footpath. I just, in my brain, I was like, it's a footpath. You know, I wasn't thinking cows. So I set out this tent long ways along this path and I got my stakes in the ground because there was some earth there for the most part. But on the front end where it gets wider, where you climb in and out, I could not get the stakes all the way in the ground. So I could not zip the front flap all the way. Okay. No big deal. We got all these people around here. I ain't worried about it. I wake up from a weird dream, feeling like sweaty and smelling this pretty bad odor. It wasn't like butthole, but it was bad. And 
I realized that there was like a breeze blowing in my face intermittently, just like huff, huff, huff. And I'm waking up, right? I'm waking up. This is not, this has never happened to me before, nor has it happened since. It's not like I have some, you know, experience to draw from back here in my life. Okay. Um, and all of a sudden I started realizing something's very wrong here in the moonlight. As I open my eyes and I start trying to get my bearings, I start to realize there is a cow standing essentially well his head is in my tent it's standing outside of my tent but its face is directly over my face and it is like sniffing me trying to figure out what the hell i am i'm in a mummy bag i don't have use of my arms easily readily i've worked cows in my life after i realized that this was reality of what was going on and i wasn't dreaming i was terrified i don't think i've ever been more scared in my entire life because this giant animal that probably weighed, you know, 800 to 900 pounds, a thousand pounds, possibly big old, you know, heifer is standing there over me, doesn't know what I am. And if I make any sudden moves, what if I scare it and it lunges forward, its head's going to bury into my bivy tent. It's going to get hung, not know what to do or where to go. I'm like, I'm under its feet. I'm going to be under its feet. It was a bad situation. It was a bad situation. And so anyway, I'm looking at this cow and there's a moment that lasted 45 minutes in my brain, but it was probably only like literally two or three seconds, you know, just eternity of me trying to decide what to do. And finally, the only thing I knew to do is I looked at this cow up its nose. Essentially, it was dark. I couldn't see up its nose, but I can see it in the, the, the firelight and the moonlight. I can see its shadow. I can see its head over me. And I just look at it and I said, you better not step on me, you Anyway, the cow literally like decided, hey, I don't know what this is, but I'm not really that interested in it. And after I called it a dirty name and told it it better not step on me, it like did this one big kind of snort like and then backed out and then walked around the edge of my tent. So as soon as he was out of my tent, I came out of that sleeping bag and out of that tent like a rocket as fast as I could. And I looked around. And around the, the dimming campfire that had not yet burned out from the last people that had been up however long ago, there were cows literally milling through our entire camp. There's like five tents, six tents set out, and there's cows everywhere, wandering through the entire camp, walking around the campfire, like knocking bags around, like sniffing stuff, checking everything out. And I was like, oh my God. So I start, I didn't start yelling, but I like worked my way over. Because I really didn't want to spook these cows. Like I said, I've worked cows before. They may be docile, but they will still hurt you really bad not trying to. Just if you spook them and they take off running, if you take a shoulder, go down under one, it's not good. So I like start kind of creeping my way ninja style over to the closest tent. I don't even know who's in it. And I start shaking the tent. I'm like, hey, 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 wake up, wake up. We got a problem. And finally got everyone awake. Everyone comes out and there's cows and everyone's just looking around like in awe, like what the hell is happening right now? So we started having to shoo the cows out of camp and we managed to do that. We did manage to get them to finally leave. They went back up into the field that they came out of and not everyone was able to go back to sleep. I was one of them. I tried, but I kept having really jacked up dreams right at that moment where I would fade 
bam, I'd wake back up because I'd think that cow was standing. It like traumatized me for that night, at least in that moment. I couldn't sleep again. I tried, woke up two or three times from a nightmare. And I was like, nope, nope, forget it. I just got up, went over, sat by the fire with like four other people that were doing the same thing as me. And we sat there until dawn. And honestly, that was a pretty miserable trip. But things like that happen, y'all. Things like that happen out there. And it's funny after the fact. It's funny to be able to sit here and tell you, man. Like, I'm sure a lot of y'all are getting a kick out of that. Me telling a cow off as it stands over me and I'm basically trapped in a freaking death burrito. Like, I'm sure that's funny to you. It's funny to me looking back on it. But in that moment, it was terrifying. But stuff like that happens. Like, I have friends that ran into a situation like this with wild hogs on the Buffalo River. That's the kind of thing you need to keep that in mind. Overnight yak packing is like overnight backpacking. You need to put your food up. You need to make sure it's sealed up. You need to make sure that things can't smell it. Like, for the hogs in particular, these cows, they were just going to the river for water. But I pointed out and brought up the hogs up on the Buffalo River. You don't want them in your camp. Like, that's all I'm saying. You don't want them in your camp, so you have to treat, you know, yak packing a lot like backpacking. Um, the Illinois River, though, was good to us in a lot of ways. It was a good entrance into getting on the water because it's a nice, lazy river. Every once in a while, you'll find a few little class one rapids and kind of get a taste for, oh boy, I want to go find some real white water. Um, it's a great intro. It's a great introduction to the river. But again, it got so wild. The river got so crowded. Even if you don't mind all the nudity and noise, it gets so crowded. There's never a never a gravel bar to have lunch on. There's never anywhere to stop if you go on weekends. You know, we we started adjusting over the years to doing it during the week if we could. And then we had to change rivers and we went to the elk and then the elk got kind of out of hand. And, you know, you have to go further and further back. And that's becoming true in many, many ways about many, many situations out there in the wilderness right now to get out on your own, to really get back there alone. But like, it was a good introduction. There are several, man, y'all, I could tell stories all damn night about Buffalo trips. And we're going to do two of those, I think, specifically at the end of this episode here in a few minutes. Um, I could tell you stories all night about overnight trips here in the state of Arkansas and the Ozarks. And there's some great ones. But I'll give you an idea of a couple of them here. Um, one that I remember very well um, was the Kings River. Like, I'd never gone and done the Kings River. I'd heard about it forever. I'd done the Buffalo a billion times. I'd done the Mulberry, I'd gone down the Cossata, you know, down the Washita's, been to many, many different rivers, but I'd never gone up to the Kings and actually floated on it. So we put together an overnight float for the Kings. We worked with, I believe it was Kings River Outfitters, and I don't know where they are anymore because I was actually just up there last week, not on the river, but on a hiking trip. And I stopped in to Kings River Outfitters just to check, go in the store because it'd been a while. Like their convenience store is still there. But where they outfitted floats from, it's like a it's like a variety store. Like I was about to say it's like A to Z, but only people in western Arkansas are gonna know what A to Z is. Um, it's like a variety store of just stuff. And then the rest of it's like maybe homemade quilts or something. Like it's just like this random freaking little store. It's not the outfitter anymore. So I'm curious. I gotta look into it. I started looking around, I was like, where's all their their boats where are their kayaks their rafts like maybe they moved to a different facility or maybe they just quit doing it i don't know i have to look into it if any of y'all know shoot me an email shoot me a line let me know find me on facebook um i gotta look into it but it was a i remember this very well about the king's river there were so damn many snakes there were snakes everywhere like i'm talking 
it was almost like nightmare fuel for me personally. Like we stayed out mid river for the most part, you know, and fished all day and stuff. Like it didn't bother me that bad. It wasn't a huge deal, but I remember being struck by just how freaking many snakes there were out there on the Kings river. It was so much more than I was used to. Even the upper Buffalo, the upper Buffalo is very wild. The lower Mulberry gets very wild. Lots of snakes. The Kings river put them both to shame. Like there were snakes freaking everywhere. The other thing I remember about that particular overnight float on the, on the Kings is we hit a point and the, the outfielder out, outfitter failed us a little bit. Okay. We weren't ready going into this because he told us about like this one thing to look out for. And we looked out for that. No big deal. But we came across something that was far, far more dangerous than the one thing that he pointed out. And it nearly took, took us out. Almost all of us. There was a low water bridge that we had to cross and the water was just the perfect level where it was just over the bridge. And I didn't even realize that I was about to go over a situation until I was already into the middle of the situation and there was no going back. And that's a heart stopper. If you guys have ever found yourself at the moment of no return and you weren't prepared to go into a moment of no return mentally, you didn't know you were about to do this thing. You didn't have time to think it through and all of your contingency plans and your, your exit strategies. You're just suddenly there and you don't have, but maybe a split second to even recognize it's happening. That's a heart stopping moment. That's scary. That will get your blood pressure up. That will get your heart racing. And all it was, like, whatever the water level was, this has been several years ago now, I don't remember. Whatever the water level was, it was enough that this low water bridge was underwater. And on the far side of it, it was just underwater enough that the far side had just a few, like, maybe six, eight inches of drop off back into where it was a little bit lower on the other side. And it was creating a nasty hydro. There was a hydraulic that was churning, like... If you've ever seen a really nasty hydraulic, you know what they look like. They look violent. Just to just to see it, you can tell it's violent. It was a violent hydraulic. And my nose was already about to tip off that bridge before I realized I was going over a bridge. It was almost optical illusion-esque. It fooled all of us. It wasn't just me. I remember yelling like, guys, there's a thing here. And everyone's like, what? And they all started backpedaling and trying to find a place to get out of the current and figure out how to handle this little situation. I just balled off into it. I didn't have a choice. And it terrified the living hell out of me. I made it through like I cleared. But I promise you, you could feel the pull of that hydro. When I came out the other side, when I came off the bridge into the hydro, out of the hydro, it's immediately starting to drag you backwards. I mean, you have to dig in. You've really got to dig in. You figure out how much horsepower you got in those arms on you. Like you've got to dig in with those paddles and get loose of that hydro. Because if it pulls you back up against the bridge, likely it's going to turn you up. It's hard to stay perfectly balanced when the water is drawing you back to something. It's hard to stay balanced. That is an incredibly dangerous situation. So I got lucky. I was able to plow out of it. And I think honestly, between you and me and the fence post, I think a whole lot of that was adrenaline. Honest to goodness truth, I think the vast majority of it was adrenaline because I was scared. In that moment, I was terrified because, like, you know, if you do any research or you've ever known anyone that has been in a hydraulic or been killed by one, that's not that uncommon. It's a bad, bad deal. You know the consequences can be, can be very brutal. Um, that's all I'm saying. And I was not prepared for that. We were not warned. And I remember we were all like, I cannot believe the guy that outfitted us didn't tell us to look out for this. Because any good outfitter, 
happens on the mulberry. I've loaded it a billion times, but they still always tell you, hey, you're putting in here today. There's a strainer on this bend. There's a strainer on this bend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, they give you current conditions. Like a bridge is always there. The water level is always going to be about the same when that bridge is a real obstacle. He kind of felled us on that. But anyway, I digress. The other two or no, there were several of us in that group. The other four or five, all solo kayaks, they just hit it as fast as they could hit it and tried to skip across that hydro, tried to have as much momentum coming out of it as they could. And they all cleared just fine. Um, the next thing I remember about that trip, there are two more things, the biggest things. And these are the kind of things that you go out there for. These are the reasons you do overnights and you, you struggle with getting everything packed nice and light and tight. The reason you do all these things is because of these moments you have back in the middle of nowhere. One of those two things is the smallmouth fishing got insane. I'm talking everyone caught 20 plus, 30 plus. Every individual, I think I caught 26 or 27. I know my brother caught over 30 and everyone else had similar, similar days. Like we had bleedy fingers. Anyone that catches a whole bunch of smallmouth and largemouth, you know what I'm talking about. When that thumb starts bleeding from lip and fish, you've had a great day on the water. We caught so many fish back there in the in the deepest part of the middle of nothing, and it was an incredible fishing trip. But the way that day wrapped up was even better. We found this big sweeping left-hand turn in the river, big bend in the river with a large gravel bar. Fortunately, you know, it, well, it, it actually wouldn't have affected anything. I say fortunately like there's something bad going to happen. Um, it wouldn't have affected anything. But at this point, we were smart enough to not camp on the edge of the water. We had gotten mature enough to not need to be trolly enough to stay right down on the water's edge. Um, and we got up and we put our hammocks. We had our hammocks in this awesome little camp spot right there on the inside bend up above the, the bed of the river, looking down on the bend in the river, had our fire. We cooked steaks that night. We had the one guy that brought the ice chest that just had like six steaks in it. I had my little grill. We had our charcoal and another guy in a, in a water bag. Like we cooked steaks over a freaking open flat campfire slash grill type of situation. We put together in a fire ring, had the best steaks ever. And then watched as thunderstorms rolled to our southwest, which kept me up most of the night afraid. Not afraid, but um, alerted. Because the one thing that you really truly cannot account for in your own personal safety when you're way back in the backcountry is lightning. There's not everything else you can almost come up with plans for. You can mitigate the possibilities of. Lightning is the one thing you can't run from. Like, well, we could have. We could have got back on the river in the middle of the night trying to use headlamps and probably got ourselves killed. But no, you're there. If a thunderstorm rolls over you, guys, welcome to it. You in it. There ain't nothing you can do about lightning. Like, there are certain little things you can look into. Like, you can learn, like, you're supposed to get away from the tallest trees, but not out into an open field. You're supposed to get into, like, a grove of trees that have all basically median height trees, you know, pretty standard height trees. They're all close to the same squat down, you know, and I'm not going to finish that by saying stick your head between your legs and kiss your tail goodbye, but you squat down flat footed as you can keep all of your body off of the ground and your feet flat, the rubber sole of your shoes. So that if you take a strike, if you take a direct hit, you're dead, just forget about it. But if you take a peripheral hit, if one hits a hundred feet from you, yeah, it's going to mess you up, but you might survive it. Those are the survival stories. Direct hits, I think it's incredibly rare for anyone to survive a, like a dead-on direct hit. Um, 
but I know that people get struck most often in like a peripheral type of situation. It's within a hundred feet of them, 200 feet of them, 50 feet of them. So there are certain things you can do to try to mitigate. And hopefully like you're just playing the odds. You're just trying to make the odds a little bit better, but you are at the mercy of mother nature when that lightning comes. So I was on edge. I was watching it all night, but it was also beautiful. Like I had just caught so many small mouth. I couldn't see straight. I had just eaten an awesome steak. I had just laid up in my hammock and was sitting there watching thunderheads light up like fireworks in the distance. Y'all, y'all, that, those are the reasons you go out and you do overnights. You know, it's just a little bit scary, a little bit unnerving. If those storms come on to us and we didn't have service, that's how far back there you are. That's why you're back there is to not have service. I don't know what the weather's going to do. I can't look at my radar scope. I can't use any of the senses I've, any of the training that I've gained over my years as a storm spotter with the weather service. None of that's good for me, to me. None of that, because I have no technology to be able to read and see and make any kinds of decisions. You just stuck with it. The unknown little bit, little bit unnerving, but that's also the beauty of it. That's you living y'all. That's being out there where you wanted to get away from everything the way it used to be before that 1950s, before the 1800s, the way it used to be for the freaking voyagers in Canada and the native Americans, the indigenous people and the faith, the frontiersmen, the, the settlers of this country. That's how it used to be. And that's what we're chasing is a little bit of a taste of that. That's why we go. And that night, that particular trip, that was beautiful. That was an awesome trip. I finally fell asleep because I simply could not stay awake any longer. Wasn't any doing of my own because I'd have stayed up all night watching them damn storms. It finally just, I passed out, woke up, nothing was wet. The storms never made it to us. They passed south of us. Um, somehow we were in a pocket. We were just north of everything and it just gave us a beautiful light show that night. Um, so that was in and of itself, actually a pretty dang great trip, despite all the snakes, despite the, the nasty hydraulic that was sneakily hiding out on the other side of a hidden low water bridge. That was, that was one of the more memorable trips I've had just for all the fish and those beautiful friggin' thunderheads flashing in the distance. Um, so let's get into, man, we've run on an hour here. We got to get moving here. Good grief. But let's go ahead and talk about a couple of overnight stories. Let's just talk about one of them on the Buffalo. Now we got to tell stories from both because there's important points I want to make out of both of these multiple stories I could tell about overnights on the Buffalo, but we're just going to keep a few here. Um, y'all, if you've never floated, if you've never paddled, if you've never been on the upper Buffalo for all of you listeners out there, I see you guys listening in Canada and in Europe. Like it's been kind of cool looking at the stats come in where people are listening to me talk about random stuff in the wilderness and the outdoors, many, many, many of y'all never even heard of the Buffalo River. Well, if you haven't, get to Googling y'all because you will thank me later and you may have something to put on your bucket list because the Buffalo River is worth it. Buffalo River, for anyone outside of this area that's not seen it, had the had the good fortune to see it multiple times in your life like I've had and all of us lucky folks that live here in the state of Arkansas, Google it and you may, it's absolutely bucket bucket list worthy absolutely is for anyone outside of our area. Um, but we're going to talk about that because it's God, y'all, there's nothing like it. Like there's nothing like it. It's top tier for me with a lot of other things that would be on my bucket list out there. It's not floating the Colorado river. You know, it's not doing the whitewater through the grand Canyon. It's not that, 
but it has a natural beauty that sets it inside of a tier of things, an upper echelon of things you should see with your eyes, like the Grand Canyon, like Yosemite. I've said this before, and I stand by it to this day. I went to Yosemite three, did I go four times? I went three or four times in two and a half months when I was on the coast of Cali for work. The Buffalo, if you cut the area with Big Bluff and Hemden Hollow and all that, the upper Buffalo from like Ponca to Steel Creek or maybe Kyle's Landing, if you take that area and you carved it out and you just dropped it somewhere into Yosemite Valley, it's not going to outshine El Cap. It's not going to outshine um, Half Dome or the, the upper and lower Yosemite or Bridalville. It's not going to outshine that, but it's going to fit right in with it. That's the best way I know to describe it. If the upper buffalo was chopped out and dropped into Yosemite Valley, you wouldn't bat an eye. As you glanced across the valley, you wouldn't go, hey, that looks out of place. It wouldn't. It would look like it fit right in. It's that majestic. It's that beautiful. So anyway, just doing the buffalo alone, something everyone should do. But doing overnights on the buffalo, which is in a designated dark, international dark sky park, it is an upper, you know, the the upper buffalo, middle and lower buffalo, the wilderness area. Like, there's nothing there, y'all. There ain't nothing there. Like, it is truly a wilderness experience. The more sections of it you can overnight, the more sections of it you can float, the better off you are. I've floated upper, middle, lower so many times I can't count them. The lower and the middle are great in the late summer because there's enough water to get out there on the river when you can't float the upper anymore. But if you want to see true majestic beauty, just like knock your socks off every turn you make. Duponka to Kyle's Landing or somewhere like that. Some Steel Creek, Kyle's, somewhere up there. We'll just just blow your mind. But anyway, so it is a natural place for us to want to do multiple day trips, especially considering it's like a three to a four hour drive, depending on where I lived at, at what point I was making these trips. And it's a long drive. So it's better if you can get two days out of it, three days out of it, right? I mean, and if this gives you any insight to me as a human being, my bachelor party... Before I got married, way back in the day, it was an overnight trip on the Buffalo. Like me personally, I don't know. There's something about paying women to be nude that just doesn't scream loyalty and like consideration to me, like loyalty and respect. So like, you know, had no interest in that kind, like a stag party or whatever. My bachelor party was an excuse to get some of my best friends together and go spend a couple of days smallmouth fishing on the Buffalo River. Um, And so we did that. On this party, I don't remember particularly where we put in. I don't remember particularly where we got out. But I remember some very particular situations that happened. Um, Number one, we talked about several episodes ago in the spooky season. That was the one where the GPS got us off in the middle of nowhere. And we run across that guy holding machete with three cars. And he was the only person there. And he didn't look like a forestry worker. And he was wearing like tennis shoes and jeans that he did not belong there. He wanders out carrying a machete, one person, three cars. I still wonder, I still wonder if there's like missing people that could be explained by what I saw that day. But regardless, other things that happened on that particular trip, the fishing was incredible. The fishing was absolutely out of this world. That was just like that night on the Kings. Everyone caught 20 plus. I don't think we got as many as we did on the Kings that night. But we, everyone caught 20 plus. My brother caught a five pound, roughly five pound largemouth. Beautiful fish. Like the fishing was awesome. Um, The main story I want to tell about this, the bachelor party. Okay. Everyone brought alcohol. 
But me, I didn't, again, by then I'd kind of quit drinking. I wasn't really into it. Like I might drink a beer or something because yeah, on a really hot day when you're getting really parched and baked, a really ice cold beer can be kind of tasty on the river as much as I hate to admit it. But I didn't take a lot of alcohol. I took water and I took like soda because that's my big vice on this planet that I'm still working on cutting off. Um, But like we weren't prepared for how hot it was going to be. I got married like August. God, I don't even remember what day I got married. Was it the 1st or the 10th? That might be why I'm not married anymore. Anyway, I think it was August 10th. Yes, it was August 10th. So we went on like August 3rd or 4th and it was baking hot. And we did something brilliant, which was, I think, like 26 miles is what we did. We were in the middle section of the river. Also important, not nearly as high of water flow. Like the river broadens out a lot, a lot less elevation drop. You're not moving as fast. You have to do more of the work. You're paddling. The horsepower in your biceps is what's getting you where you're going as you get to the lower sections of the river, middle to lower. Well, that's what we had to do because it was August, right? And you couldn't paddle the upper. So we're putting out a lot of exertion and we didn't come completely prepared. And this is one of the first times we started looking into trying to downsize ice chest and things like that for real for two days because we were going to have a little bit of a, you know, a great time. We took steaks, we took food, you know, in our bags, whatever. Um, but we tried to, someone had the bright idea, yo, we need to get soft-sided coolers. That will be easier to pack on the kayak. So we all went to like Walmart or wherever everyone went to get their little soft-sided coolers. That was a huge mistake. And this was before ice mules, to my knowledge. This was definitely before Yeti was doing the really soft-sided stuff. And ice mules, I'm a big proponent of, by the way. I have an ice mule now and I love it. It's great for a whole day on the river. I do not know yet how it will go into day two, but Someday I'll update you when I find that out. But what we learned on that trip, the main thing I learned on that trip, and I've carried it with me this day forward, or from that day forward, y'all, we got into real trouble by probably 10 a.m. the next morning because we got baked on the river. And I'm not talking about smoking pot baked. I'm talking about baked by the sun in August in Arkansas heat and humidity. The ice had melted and all of our ice chest by dinner that night, we still had a whole day ahead of us. The ice had melted by the next morning. Everything was hot. The water was hot and no one brought a whole lot of water because no one was there to drink water and be healthy. Everyone was there to drink beer and have a good time because it's Justin's bachelor party, right? So everyone's dehydrated from drinking too much alcohol. I'm dehydrated from drinking too much soda and water and you know, not enough water. There's very few waters for anyone. Okay, by the next morning, 10, 11 a.m., okay, we were drinking the water out of the coolers that had melted, which was gross enough because there was different, you know, particles and junk in it. By 2 o'clock the next afternoon, and this is not a lie, we were stomping in the chutes, the fast-running chutes on the river to drink river water. Okay, now that's a calculated risk. Okay, yeah, you could get Giardia or whatever. You could get, you could die of dysentery on the Oregon Trail. Absolutely. But... It's our last day on the river. We're getting picked up in like five or six hours. We can go to the hospital. This stuff doesn't set in for two or three days or a week anyway. So we're going to drink water now and stay alive till then. And y'all might think it's only two days. That's not that big a deal, y'all. No, no, really it is. Until you've been out there, until you're overheated, until you're extremely overheated, until you're extremely dehydrated and overheated, you don't know how dangerous that situation could actually be. We could have been in super serious trouble. I was out there with my t-shirt and sand when I found a sandbar I had my t-shirt throwing sand in it and draining water through the sand to try to get because the buffalo's clear it's beautiful y'all 
Buffalo is clear and it looks pristine, but wait until you're drinking it and you got it in your hands and there's all these little algaes and floaty things all in it. Like, yeah, it's clear to look at it, but as far as being like pure, like, no, it's got all kinds of detritus and things in it, you know, like little stuff that stirs up from the bottom and flows downstream. So I'm using like the old school trick of freaking my t-shirt, all the freaking like sand in it to try to help filter out all the little cruddy things. And I'm drinking water pouring out of this t-shirt and it was gross. Like it tasted horrible. It was not good. Um, that stuck with me. That was when I learned way back then I have to have a life straw because that would have changed a whole lot of stuff for everyone. If we'd had one life straw to share between us, we could have tanked on water. You can only drink so much lukewarm river water until you're like vomiting it back up. Right? Because it doesn't set well in your stomach. Like it's not, it's not fun. It's not a good deal. So like I learned then life straws always going with me. And ironically, you know, whatever, coincidentally, I've never actually been back in a situation quite like that. But to this day, there's a life straw everywhere I go. Every time it's in a bag that I take. Um, and that's important. Note that's an important lesson learned from a multi-day trip that I went on. It wasn't intended to be like a super wilderness backpacking, you know, yak packing excursion before I sound too foolish here. We were going out to drink some beer. They were eat some steaks, fish our to our heart's content and come back. It was meant to be a celebration and a lot of fun. We picked way too long a trip on way too hot. A couple of days It played out how it played out. And we ended up in a pretty serious situation drinking river water. And that is not a joke. And it was gross Buy life straws, carry life straws with you. I'm just saying lesson learned there. Um, anyway, I'm throwing myself under the bus. I'm all about it. Like if y'all can learn from me, that's fine. I don't care. We all make mistakes. I ain't never had a problem with being wrong in my life. I've never had a problem with saying, Hey, I don't know the answer to that. Do you know? What do you know? Tell me what you know. Like that's, I don't know. It gets weird to me. People that can't stand to be wrong. I, I'd never understood that. There's nothing we can't all know everything. That's what life's all about is learning as you go. But anyway, learn from my foolish mistakes. Don't go out without a life straw. Don't go out with cheap freaking soft-sided coolers. You know, try to do something a little bit smarter than that and take more water than we did. All right. So that took 13 minutes. Let's tell one more. This is going to be an hour and a half long episode, but you know what? It's flowing like a bottle of Drano. So we're going to go with it tonight. Um, I'm going to push my whole two hour window here. I'm going to be in trouble in a minute. Um, anyway, let's get into one more little trip because this trip that I want to tell you about, the reason I thought of it to tell it is because this is an example of a different kind of float trip. Most people in the South tend to have this idea of float trips. It's like, this is where we're going to go get hammered. That's been my experience most of my life with people that go and do it. Like it's hard for me to find places to get away where it's more of a nature trip. The upper bubble or the Buffalo is great because it can be in the summer or in the spring when you're doing the upper, it can be extreme enough. You know, it ain't like class three or four rapids, but the, the water gets fast. There's some pretty decent rapids. You know, those kinds of rivers tend to strain out, tend to screen out some of the more party style people because they're not there to work. They're there to drink and float on a boat and turn, you know, crab apple red. But it's gotten harder to get out into the more wilderness types of things. This trip in particular was an overnight that we did on the Buffalo um, that played out kind of the way I like to see a trip. You're used to thinking about hot, hot sun beating down on you. I don't remember what time of year we took this. All I remember is the weather conditions, and that's what made this trip beautiful. It was cooler, much cooler. We woke up in the mornings. It was much cooler. It was absolutely beautiful to be down in the Buffalo River Valley 
when the weather is turning colder. Yeah, it made it a little uncomfortable. We had to go a little bit more prepared. Absolutely. No way around that. We had to have better sleeping bags. It took a little more weight. We had to pack a little more conscientiously. Like, absolutely. But it was worth it. Because main things I remember, one of the main things, waking up, we camped one night on the gravel bar at the confluence of the buffalo and the little buffalo. I already hear any of you responsible people out there screaming. I'm going to come back to that. Hold your emails. But we camped right down on the water, the confluence of the little buffalo and the buffalo. And when we woke up that morning, I came out of that tent and looked downriver into the bend in the river that's coming up. And there's the friggin' beautiful Buffalo River bluff lines down there in the distance. There's everything you come to know, but there is a fog hanging in the valley, not all the way down on the river, just like maybe a, I don't know, four or 500 foot ceiling, y'all just all the way through the river. There's fog everywhere. It was like being in a fantasy novel. It was a different kind of way to see the Buffalo than, or any river than you're used to seeing, unless you do, you know, overnight floats. That's one of the ways to get to experience a float like this is choose different times of year. Um, overnights where you're out there away from the crowds, away from the people to wake up to that silence in the morning, nothing it was, I do remember how dead it was, the silence, like the humidity of the fog in the air. Y'all, it was absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. The only way to experience that is to spend that night on the river where you're waking up in your hammock, in your tent at the crack of dawn and you're already there. You're already at it. I mean, you're there. It's 530. It's 6 a.m. You're waking up just because you're out there camping and it's not the most comfortable and you're awake and you get to see these beautiful little moments like this. You get to see nature when it basically is paying you no heed. There are no people. There is no noise. There's nothing echoing through the valley. There's just this deadness, this stillness that's absolutely, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to experience. That was also the morning that I learned the lesson that in shoulder seasons, in transitional seasons, cold water or cold-blooded critters, rather, like snakes, tend to like to snuggle up to things that hold heat. The the PVC type of material that kayaks are made of tend to really carry a lot of heat into the night. And I woke up to a friendly water moccasin camped out in my kayak the next morning. So always, lesson learned, always check your kayaks, y'all. Always check your kayaks, especially when the weather's changing and it's getting cooler and things might be wanting to snuggle up with things that are a little bit warmer, like a kayak that had been baking in the sun all day. Um, guys, there's more I could tell about that, that story, um, about that particular trip, but we've run really, really long now. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this episode up as much as I don't want to, man. I'm enjoying this episode a lot. I mean, I'm going to do some more episodes about overnight trips that I've done. Um, but we are, we're going to have to wrap it up. I'm running out of time for everything, basically this episode and everything else I got to do. So I appreciate you guys joining me once again. Like I cannot tell you guys how thankful I am for all of you that are listening and all of you that are sharing me with your friends and please continue to do that. Please like, and subscribe at Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening, a rating and a review, a subscription means so much because it helps us to be more discoverable by all of our peers, all of the other wayward souls out there. Um, 
If you like what you're hearing and you'd like to submit your story into the mix, mywaywardstory at gmail.com. If you want to check out all the pictures and videos and things that we do, go to waywardstories.com. That's where you can get to all my social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. And you can also get to our YouTube, which if you just go to YouTube, youtube.com forward slash wayward stories, and you can see a lot of videos about a lot of things we talk about. None of these These are years ago before I was making videos for this kind of stuff, but anything current, it's going to be on there. Highly recommend you checking it out. Would appreciate the subscription until we meet again. Continue to dream of the Buffalo river. Continue to dream of whatever river it is that you love or what you love to do. Get out of your winter doldrums, get your gear out, clean it all up and get ready for the summer and the season that is coming until I talk to you again. You guys be good to each other.